Our Bible reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Colossians, Colossians chapter 4. I'll be reading verses 2 through 6, which is found on page 1,832 in your pew Bibles. And for those of you who are visiting or, or those of you who don't know, uh, we're continuing a sermon series called I Was Just Wondering. Aaron already mentioned that. And all the sermons in this series are based on questions and topics suggested by the young people of our church. And today's topic is, how do I talk to other people about my faith? How do I talk to my friends? How do I talk to unbelievers about my faith without pushing them away, without compromising my friendship? Okay, it's a really good question. And the words that will guide us are these words from Colossians 4. There's lots of places, there's a number of places in the New Testament that speak to this issue. This is the one we chose. Listen to these words. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. And now verse five and six are especially the verses that I'm gonna focus on. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer everyone. This is the word of the Lord. So how do we talk to others? How do we talk to friends? How do we talk to non-believers about our faith without pushing them away? We come by this question honestly. In fact, I, I think you can say that Jesus is the one who gives us this question. Because Jesus said, and I read these words during the baptism, he's the one who said, go make disciples of all nations, go baptize everyone, go tell everyone else, about Jesus, about me. He gave us this assignment just before he left this earth with his disciples. And it was for them and it's for us too. And it's a reasonable assignment. Why wouldn't we want to tell others about the fact that God himself has come down to earth as a human being and has poured himself out in love and sacrifice and forgiveness? This is really good news. But still, sometimes we hesitate, and we hesitate because we're not always sure how to do it. And maybe especially today, we worry that um, when we tell others about Jesus, we'll seem judgmental, or condescending, or we'll just be really awkward. When I was a, a, a much younger man, uh, newly married, Linda and I lived on College Street in Alger Heights. And uh, just about four doors down from us, there was a Jehovah's Witness who lived. And if you know anything about Jehovah's Witnesses, you know that they're mightily motivated to go door to door and share their faith with others. And this Jehovah's Witness, we'd been there about three years. He'd always lived there. We didn't, he'd, we'd had no relationship with him. We'd like wave to him a couple times, never really had a conversation with us. And one day, Linda was in the garden on her knees, planting begonias or something. I don't know what she was planting. And this guy sort of wanders over to us, and he says, hey, how's it going? And then it goes, no, good. And then he says, well, I wondered if you ever thought about Jesus and salvation. And it was just really awkward. 
It was completely out of the blue. It was not good. And after Linda explained that, we're pretty familiar with Jesus and we're pretty invested in his ministry as a minister and as a Christian school teacher, he sort of wandered away. And then in the 10 years we lived there, he barely spoke to us again. It's exchanges like that that lead young people and all of us to ask today's question. Because we don't want sharing our faith to look like that, right? That's not, we don't want to be that guy. We don't want it to be that awkward. We don't want it to be a situation that could, frankly, make things worse instead of better. Fortunately, the Bible does not leave us empty-handed here. It gives us good words. And I went through the whole New Testament, and I try to find every passage that gives specific instruction about how to talk to outsiders, which was really interesting and really good to put them all together and read them. And none of them were judgmental. None of them were finger-pointing. None of them were angry. Representative of them is, is this passage from Colossians 4. Be wise in the way you act to outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity let your conversation be filled with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may always know how to give an answer to others. Now, there's a lot in that little, those two little verses, but my sermon is just going to follow them, and, and we'll basically unpack it as we go, and we'll start at the beginning. Paul starts by saying, be wise in the way that you act to outsiders. Be wise. It starts with wisdom. Wisdom is a big concept. It means many things, but when you are wise, one of the things you do when you are wise is that you pay attention to the place where the other person is coming from. You pay attention to the interior state of the person to whom you are talking, and you adjust your approach accordingly. So, for example, if you live in a household with another person, you know, brother, sister, spouse, child, if you're in college and you have a roommate, if you are wise, pretty quickly... You learn to read the other person in their moods. You better learn that, okay? When they're edgy, when they're tired, when they're happy, when they're approachable, and when they're not. And once you read that in wisdom, you approach them differently depending on their mood, right? So if your sister has a big math exam today and she's edgy and crabby, today is not the day to confront her about the fact that she always seems to use your towel every time she comes out of the shower. That will not end well. That is not wisdom. What does that mean for our approach to unbelievers? Well, I think it means at least this. When we approach people who um, are secular or, or not people of faith, whatever they look like on the outside, whatever it may seem, I promise you that inside, they have the same spiritual questions, the same spiritual hunger, the same spiritual churn as every single one of us. Spiritual things are going inside of, going on inside of every single person you meet. And you know where you really see that? Is at funerals. Funerals. I get a unique perspective on funerals because I get to sit up here and see everyone and conduct the funeral. And at every funeral, there's some people who are believers and some people who are not. That's the way it is. And you all always can tell the people who are not believers because they don't sing the songs and they don't read the creed, which, which is fine, right? That's, that's who they are. But I'll tell you this, even though they don't participate in some of the stuff, when the words of the sermon are coming, 
They are listening as hard and they are as engaged as any other person in that room. Because for all of us, Christians and non-Christians alike, death stirs up our spirit. Death brings to the surface all our spiritual feelings and all our spiritual questions. And that's because for everyone, Christian and non-Christian, death feels like an outrage. I know biologically death, you know, it's part of the cycle of life, etc., etc. But spiritually, existentially, death feels like an outrage. Because, let me ask you this question, when you're alive, when you have the sense of consciousness, when you have the sense of yourself, does that sense of yourself, does that feel temporary? No. It feels bigger than that. It feels eternal. When you fall in love with someone, when you experience a moment of transcendent joy, when you welcome a child into the world, when you hear a piece of music that just moves you, you feel your soul expand. You feel lifted up. You don't feel like a carbon-based machine. You feel bigger than that. You feel eternity in your heart. And, and all of us, I think, are outraged by the fact and confuddled by the fact that how can this come to an end? How can death suddenly snuff this beautiful, expansive sense of ourselves? How can that just sort of come to an end? How can this person who's so important in my life and whose spirit blesses me, and whose spirit I lean upon, how can they suddenly be gone? At funerals, you can see everyone wrestling with this question. Be wise in your approach to outsiders. When you meet outsiders, wherever you meet them, whether it's in your neighborhood or at work, those questions are inside them. There's a spiritual churn going on, and you know the words to calm those waters. You know the word who can bring hope to that dark place. You have the language that they seek to speak about these matters that are inside them all the time. Be wise in your approach to outsiders. Know that that stuff is inside them and they are ready to talk about it. Now, how to properly engage with a deep discussion like that, how do you get to a deep discussion like that, that's, that's tricky. Fortunately, Paul helps us with that too. What he says, he says, make the most of every opportunity, notice when the opportunities are there, and make sure your conversation is full of grace. So in your approach, whatever it is, make sure that you're full of grace and full of kindness, and that is the best way. Leading with kindness and grace is the best way to deeply engage in spiritual conversations. And it was interesting, as I went through all the passages about how to deal with outsiders, that is a consistent message, right? Let me just go through a few of them, and you'll hear. It's always grace. It's never finger-pointing. It's never judgment. It's always grace. First Thessalonians. Lead a quiet life so that you may win the respect of outsiders. It's important that, that people out there respect us. It does matter what people think of Christian people. We sometimes take it as a virtue that, hey, we don't care what the world thinks of us. No, I mean, we should care a little bit. We can't control it, but we should care about it. First Peter, give people reasons for the hope you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. Titus 3, be ready to do whatever is good. Slander no one. No negative talk. 
Be peaceable and considerate and always gentle towards everyone. Finally, 1 Corinthians 10. Give no offense to Jews or Gentiles or to the church of God. Put this all together in the approach of the way we live with these outsiders, the way we live with people who don't think the same way as us. It's not judgmental. It's kindness. It's respect. It's love. It's grace. Let your conversation be full of grace. What might that look like on the ground? Here's a true story I heard from a friend. A young female who just got out of college was living in a house full of other young people. They were, you know, each sharing a bedroom as a way to uh, defray costs. Each had their own bedroom. And everybody else in the house except for her was a non-Christian in the place where she was living. And mostly that worked fine. Then one day she came downstairs and on the fridge in the the common kitchen, there were two new fridge magnets. And one of them had a picture of Satan on it. And it said, welcome to Michigan. So it was like, welcome to Michigan, Satan. The other one has said, Satan's mistress, and had a risque picture on it. Okay? So now as a Christian, you can imagine how she felt about that. She felt a little put off. And she's like, I don't like these fridge magnets. They make me feel, yeah, they make me feel bad. I think you feel unwelcome. So she went to talk to the guy who she knew put the fridge magnets on. And she says, you know, those make me uncomfortable. Why did you put them on? And he said, well, you know what? I've always identified with Lucifer. Because I heard that he was cast out of heaven. And my whole life I felt like a cast out, like I didn't belong. So I kind of identified with him. That's an interesting statement. What do you do? Where's, where do you go after that statement? Well, you could go the route of saying, that's blasphemy, take those fridge magnets off right now. Or you could say, I didn't know you felt like an outcast. Tell me about that. What makes you feel like an outsider? Where did you feel like an outsider? At school, at home? What were the stories there? And then after that gracious conversation, you could say, well, you know, for me, Jesus has been the one who welcomes outsiders. In my stories, the Jesus I know, he's the one who embraced them. He's, he's the one who went to the lepers when no one else would even touch them, and he touched them. He's the one who had the tax collectors and the sinners sit down at his table. He's the one who, I mean, the whole reason he came down to this earth was to find outsiders and people who are marginalized and bring them in. And that's why there were always hundreds of sick and desperate people around him all the time. That would be making the most of every opportunity and letting your conversation be filled with grace. And if you finished with Jesus, it would also let your conversation be seasoned with salt. That's the last thing that Paul suggests. Let your conversation be full of great, but let it also be seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. It's an interesting contrast. On the one hand, all the texts about how to deal with outsiders make it clear that we're supposed to seek their respect and be gentle and kind and in effect feel normal to them. But it's also clear that we can't seem so normal and so eager for their Uh, for a good name and for their good words, that we cease to be salty. We have to be gracious. We also have to be salty. In the ancient world, salt had two functions. It was used for seasoning, which is the main reason we use it, but it was also used as a preservative, right? You could use it to preserve meat. 
those represent the two ways, that's a metaphor for the two ways that we are supposed to be in the world. We are supposed to be a salty flavor. We're supposed to have the tang of the gospel. Our lives, our words, the way we carry each other, the way we live together as Christians is supposed to have the tang of Jesus, the faith, hope, and love of Jesus, the aroma of Christ, it says somewhere else. So that's the flavor part. But our lives together as a community should also have the life-preserving aspect. When people meet us, we should bring them flourishing. We should bring them life. Our words and our actions should speak against guilt. They should speak against shame. They should move out against poverty and desperation. The fact that we exist in a neighborhood, the fact that you live in a neighborhood, should bring that neighborhood life. It should preserve it. In our interactions with outsiders, we are respectful, we seek their good will, but we are also salty. I think it was about 20 years ago, I went to on a serve trip with youth kids in my previous church. We went to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and for a week, we worked in the inner city there in one of the, the tough neighborhoods, and we spent a week cleaning up neighborhoods. We painted houses, we fixed fences, and what I remember about that week is that it was really, really hot. It was like more than 90 degrees, and we were up on ladders, and the sun was beating down on us, and I remember that there was about 40 kids. Those covenant kids did great, man. They, they kept going, and they, they, they were cheerful, and they kept working under those conditions. Working alongside us were two kids who were from Minneapolis, and I forget exactly why they were there, but they were there like as um, maybe as apprentices of some company, and they were getting paid, but they were the same age as the high school kids. And I think it was about Thursday that they figured out and realized that we weren't getting paid for what we did. And I'll never forget the reaction. They started laughing. They said, what? Y'all aren't getting paid? Y'all are crazy. And they kept laughing. And we kept sipping on our juice boxes and eating our peanut butter sandwiches. Those two young men were tasting the salt, right? They were tasting the salt of the gospel. And they may have been laughing at that moment, but I promise you, when they went home that light, when they lay in their beds, later on they'd be thinking about that event and they're thinking, what could make kids my age travel halfway across the country, give all their time for free to help people that they don't know? What is it about this Jesus that would make people do something like that? I don't know if they were ever changed. I don't know if the Holy Spirit made them followers of Jesus. I certainly hope that's true. All I know is in that moment they tasted the salt. And that's really our obligation, right? We aren't the ones who bring conversion. We aren't the ones who do this. We facilitate it and make ourselves available. What happened to Connor, that was not something Connor did, not something I did, not something anybody did, something the Holy Spirit did, and we were there to help. Our job is by word and deed to show the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. Our job is to be wise in the way we act, to outsiders, to make the most of every opportunity, to make sure our conversations are full of grace, seasoned with salt, that we may always be able to give an answer. And then to step back 
and watch the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does, which is change everything. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the life that you bring to this world, that in this world that is complicated and in our own hearts that are complicated, your spirit moves, your gospel changes people, and and you continue to bring life. Lord, help us to be people of life. Help us to live lives that by words and deed glorify your name and bring life to the people around us. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen.